Welcome to the Let's Get Vulnerable podcast with me, your host, Dr. Morgan Anderson, clinical psychologist, relationship coach, love expert, creator of the ESL relationship method, and athletic wear connoisseur. My mission is to help you raise your self-worth, have great relationships, and step confidently into the next level of your life. Each week, two episodes will air featuring expert advice, live coaching, and tips showing you exactly how to improve your life and attract great relationships. You deserve to feel empowered, secure, and loved. So buckle up and let's get vulnerable. Are you tired of investing your time and your energy into relationships that go nowhere and you know deep down the common denominator is you. You have awareness that whatever you're doing right now in relationships is not working, it's not serving you, and you are ready to take ownership of this area of your life and finally learn how to embody a securely attached, confident woman who can attract a great relationship. If that's you, I have a very special invitation I want to invite you to apply to the Empowered, Secure, and Loved program. This is a program designed to help you no matter your attachment style, no matter your relationship past, it will help you move to secure attachment so that you can show up confident, you can communicate well, you can navigate any kind of conflict, and you can create that relationship that you've always wanted while simultaneously having high self-worth and high levels of self-love. If that's you and you know that in 2022, you are ready for a great relationship and you're committed to getting there, I want to personally invite you to apply to the ESL program Use the link in my Instagram bio. On Instagram, it's at Dr. Morgan Coaching, DR Morgan Coaching. And the link is also in the show notes. Spots are extremely limited. So go apply now to reserve your spot and start your journey to high self worth and great relationships. Welcome to a very special episode of the Let's Get Vulnerable podcast. We have Andrea Ashley with us today. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, hi, hi. Happy to be here. (laughs) So excited to have you. You can find her on Instagram. It's at adult child pod. Um, We'll get into more about her podcast. I do want to read you a little introduction just to give you a bit of a background, and then we're going to have a wonderful conversation. So a little bit about Andrea. She's a former CPA turned podcast host and producer. She grew up outside of Philadelphia in an alcoholic household. Andrea turned to drugs and alcohol herself at the age of 12. And after years in and out of rehabs and boarding schools, she was granted the gift of sobriety at the age of 19 and celebrated 13 years of continuous sobriety this past September. That's amazing. Uh, The the world should be very, very grateful that I don't drink anymore. (laughs) I get it. I get it. (laughs) 
Um, in 2018 and nine years of sobriety, Andrea had her second great surrender and came to terms with the true impact her dysfunctional upbringing had on her. This bottom and the subsequent healing work led her to launch adult child pod in March of 2021. The podcast is a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family with topics, including complex trauma, addiction, and codependency. Andrea describes the podcast as vulnerable and filterless conversations of depth and meaning with a healthy dose of humor and self mockery. I cannot wait to talk with you. This is going to be good. I just want to give a story about what I was like when I used to drink. Because I really was, I have my shirt, I have my shirt on. This is my merch. It says former, welcome to the shit show, former and sometimes currently. That's so great. Um, Yes. So, so I got sent to treatment for the first time in the eighth grade, but so I am like the breed of alcoholic that like when I drink, I just, I can curse, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I just turn into a hot ass mess shit show when I ingest alcohol. Um, So the one story that I like to give, so I, it was my senior year of high school, it was the beginning of the year, and I was in, there was this birthday party that I was going to, and I was only allowed to drink beer only. Initially, I was told if I wanted to attend, I couldn't drink at all, but I was able to negotiate to beer only, and that's because of um, some recent incidences with this group of people where I had been um, a sloppy mess. So I drank a bottle of wine before I went to the party, thinking that, like, that would give me the kickstart to where just beer only would suffice. I go to the party. Uh, I fully intended to follow the beer only policy, but I'm an alcoholic. So my intentions don't mean shit when I ingest alcohol. So it wasn't long after being there that I um, got into the liquor. And it wasn't long after that, that I was um, kicked out of the party and escorted home by two people. And so what did I do? Well, I called a taxi. This was in 2006. I called a taxi and I had that taxi take me right back to the party. And when my rearrival was not warmly welcomed, well, I caused quite a lot of noise and made quite a scene, causing the neighbors to call the police and everyone at the party got arrested for underage drinking. That was me. Wow, I bet your friends loved you for that. Aren't you? Yeah, no, I had no friends. I had no friends. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely didn't have your friends. Well, yeah, people were definitely not thrilled with that, I'm sure. No, so I know everyone's really bummed they didn't have an opportunity to to drink with me. (laughs) At a party at all. You know, (sighs) there's so much to say there, and I think just the acknowledgement that it was like that statement that you said of, Hey, I'm an alcoholic. So when I ingest alcohol, my intentions don't mean shit. That line really stuck out to me. And it's like the amount of people that are using substances, but they just have not come to like, you know, the the realization. Yeah. They haven't come to terms with that truth that they can have intentions, but as soon as they're ingesting a substance, it's just out the window. So, so 
I'm so curious about you. Like I, you know, I have guests on and I have a lot of amazing people and you, I'm like, I really want to get to know you and your story. Um, yeah. And this is, I I know in in your show, you talk about getting vulnerable. This show is let's get vulnerable. Obviously it's whatever you feel comfortable sharing, but what do you want to know? (laughs) (laughs) I just want to learn a little bit more about what, what brought you to the point of finally doing the work. And I know you talked about the surrender moment and just give us a little bit of background on you and, and what brought you to where you're at. So, um, I'll kind of talk about hitting my adult child bottom and then we can kind of like go backwards towards my, my upbringing some, but so, um, I do, you, have you talked about, do you, have you had a guest talk about like broken pickers? Do you talk about it on here? <laughs> broken well, man pickers. Yeah, we, we actually do. Cause we talk about attachment theory so. all the time. So the idea that if we have a broken picker, it's, it's basically like our attachment style is really Mm -hmm. dysregulated. So it's just, Mm -hmm. it's different language, but yeah, we talk about it all the time. So I think that most people, when they get sober, they have a broken picker. I mean, I don't think that like we walk into the rooms of recovery with like a plethora of of healthy relationship experience or high self-esteem. And so, um, yeah. So when I first got sober, you know, I had a broken picker, but so did all of my friends. But what started to happen was I started to see their and pickers prove um, and mine did not. And not only was my picker not improving, um, the way that I felt that I behaved in each new relationship was worse and worse and worse each time. And what I didn't realize at the time was that because every time that I was in a relationship, I was literally living in a trauma response. Like I had no, I had no clue that that was what was going on. And I felt just such immense shame that, um, that, that I couldn't do things differently. You know, I was not somebody who hopped from like one relationship to the next. I would take a considerable period of time in between each relationship. And once I would get over the initial heartbreak, You know, I would get to a point where I'd be feeling good about myself, high self-esteem, high self-worth. And then it was like immediately as I got into another relationship, it was like my peace of mind would just be immediately hijacked by the relationship. And I was completely um, incapable of um, acting on the discovery of red flags. Like I wouldn't even say I was like ignoring red flags. I was acknowledging the red flags. <laughs> I just wasn't wasn't doing anything about it. And so at seven years sober, um, I started dating. So my bottom is, it's called the tale of two Brian's. So I dated two alcoholics named Brian back to back that were my um, my adult child bottoms. So I dated um, Brian number one. This was at seven years sober in 2000, I guess it was 16, I guess, 17, 16. And so I dated this person for less than a month, okay? Um, There were red flags on the very first date that he probably had a drinking problem. Uh, It was definitely confirmed rather quickly. Um, And so at less than a month, 
he ghosts me. And I literally have a reaction as if my husband of like 30 years has just tragically and suddenly died from a heart attack. Like I literally became a non-functioning human. I couldn't go to work. I had to have my mom come out and take care of me, um, which says a lot because she was, you know, an active alcoholic at the time and that's how bad I was. But like literally it was just, it was unbearable. And it was like each new relationship, like it just got worse and worse and worse. And so it was through that pain that I had my first aha moment. And the realization was there is no way that the way that I'm feeling right now could actually be about this person. Like I literally feel like dying. I, I wasn't suicidal, but I definitely felt like if this is what life is like at seven years sober, like what the fuck is the point? You know, so I was like able to see that there's no way like realistically that it could be about this guy. I've known him for less than a month and he clearly has a drinking problem. And then the second aha came, my neighbor just started playing her piano. Hopefully it won't come through <laughs> every day. She just plays the same song every day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the second realization I had shortly after that was that this is a feeling that I felt often as a child, the way that I was feeling um and that was the first time that i was able to connect that my issues and romantic relationships were um, somehow related to my childhood so it's about a month later i go to a 12-step meeting this woman who had over 30 years sober she was talking about this emotional bottom that she had hit at seven years sober as a result of a relationship and it was through that relationship that she had come to terms with the true impact that her childhood had on her. And she mentioned this book, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. So I go home, I read the book, my mind is blown. Like I relate to it even more than like the big book of AA. The next week I go back to the meeting and I see her there. I run up to her and I'm like, oh my God, your share impacted me so much. I read that book, it's amazing. And she looked at me and she goes, that's great, Andrea, but I just want you to know that just reading that book is not going to be enough like this is going to be your life's work this is going to take years of therapy for you to work through you have to treat this as seriously as your alcoholism and i just remember thinking years <laughs> i'm 20 i'm 28 i'm like essentially like a senior citizen i need to have this shit fixed yesterday but at most like maybe a couple months and i just really hoped that her childhood was like a, a lot more fucked up than mine was you know and so i was like okay okay i was like i will take a year off from dating uh i'll read this book and that should be good right but uh like i say on my podcast it's like just like learning we have cancer doesn't make the cancer go away learning that my romantic my issues in romantic relationships were somehow rooted in childhood that wasn't sufficient enough for me to um to produce any change so enter brian number two um oh god you guys can hear the whole story on my podcast but um yeah, another alcoholic. He was different. So Brian number one drank every single time that we were together, but he never seemed to get drunk. Brian number two didn't drink every single time we were together, but when he did, he was like me at that party in senior senior high school. Um, but those six months were like the most miserable six months of my life. And 
Um, I just found myself like leaving work at 11 in the morning to go pull him out of bars. Like I just lived in the most, it, it was horrible. It was way more painful than the bottom that brought me into recovery. Um, and when that relationship end, ended, you know, I finally saw not only was what I was dealing with as, as powerful as my alcoholism, it actually was more powerful and that I had to treat this, that, that that lady was right, that I had to treat this as seriously as my alcoholism. Hmm. And, and that's what I did. And, um, and I realized in that moment that I was, that I was suffering from complex trauma. Um, and so I was willing to do whatever the hell it took to, to heal. And so I kind of embarked on, on this healing journey. Um, and part of that was the realization as well that not, once had I truly ever considered what a fulfilling life would look like outside of a relationship. Like seriously, all I cared about up until that point was just like finding a guy and getting married. And I was a CPA at the time I was working in, um, I was an auditor and um, I had the realization that not once had I truly thought about like, what would a fulfilling life look like? What would a fulfilling career look like? And um, I, I realized that it was, it was time for that to change and how much I was selling myself short. And so I also kind of embarked on this journey to like figure out why the fuck I was put on this earth. And that journey, like just crazy experiences, just divine experiences, the universe, just all these different things like that led me to creating the podcast in March. And it has just been like the most incredible like experience ever. I've never felt so seen, so heard, so understood. I'm blown away at the impact that this is having on people. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just so grateful for, for all of it for, I mean, my big message is like through great pain comes great change. Um, this is amazing. And I just, I just feel so grateful for both of those Brian's. (laughs) I love it. The tale of two Brian's, um, you are a survivor. And I, I just love your share here and the, the realizing that the alcoholism really was sort of the coping skill. And of course it was problematic it was causing so much pain and chaos in your life, but it was really sort of the coping. And then below that is this complex trauma. That's the root of it all. And in doing the work that you've embarked on, you're really working on the root of everything. And I think just want to acknowledge you and your bravery for doing that. Um, and I, I think about how, just as you said, it's like the the lady was telling you, it is a lifelong journey. Um, and once we just, right. It's like, (laughs) dang it. She was right. But once we accept that and just commit to it, it's like, okay, I can do this work because it's going to be here for the rest of my life. Right. Um, and obviously it gets easier, mm-hmm. but I, I love that you've taken everything and you have it on your podcast and you're really impacting people. Um, so you're totally on the right show. Cause what, what I talk about all the time is people repeating dating patterns over and over and over. And there's this thing that <laughs> Freud talks about, maybe you've heard of it, 
called repetition compulsion. You knew I was going (laughs) to say that repetition compulsion. And when I coach women, that's one of the main things I help them go through is understanding their own version of repetition compulsion and where it comes from. And, um, how did you find out about repetition compulsion? Just through all the reading that I done. I think, I think he, um, in one book, it might be, have you read Pete Walker's complex trauma? It might be in there. I've just read about it in multiple books. So, so obviously you do a ton of reading. I'm sure you and I could compare book lists at some point. And I'm, I'm the same way. I'm like, I'm always reading something. Um, and you said you also have done therapy. I'm curious your experience in therapy or just what, what work you've done with a professional. Yeah. So, so the big question I get all the time, like from listeners is how do I find a good therapist as it relates to this stuff? And, um, I think the first thing that I want to say is that it seems to be um, a common experience of adult children of dysfunctional families that we sat in therapy for years and our therapists weren't able to identify that the root cause of our issues was that was our dysfunctional upbringings. Mm -hmm. Um, It just seems to be like a very common experience. And I don't think that there is unfortunately enough therapists that are really well versed in this arena. so, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I started going to therapy when I was nine. So I, I got scapegoat. I became the scapegoat of my family when I was nine. But um, so around four years sober, I started working with the therapist and she was wonderful and she helped me in many, many ways. But this was not her area of expertise. And I was so hesitant to look for a new therapists because I was thinking, it's going to take me forever just to like catch a new person up on everything before they can start helping me. Um, but when I hit that bottom with Brian number two, I did, I Googled um, adult children of alcoholics therapist and was eventually led to mine. And thank God I found her because she has saved my fucking life. Like she has saved my life. And I saw her twice a week for the first like year and a half. Uh, I still talk to her once a week. She is also an adult child of an alcoholic. And she works in this therapy practice where like, that's all they do is just kind of focus on like the family disease of alcoholism and dysfunction. And so it's just all been about, um, yeah, just connecting the present with the past um, and under and getting a better understanding of, I mean, I would say we haven't done any like EMDR or anything like that, but it's very much trauma focused and trauma informed. and, you know, I was afraid that it was going to take forever, like for me to start feeling better. Um, but I will say that I did, I did start to notice a pretty big shift um, after a few months. But I mean, the, the transformation that has occurred has just been mind blowing. I feel so honored that I found her and also too, that I'm in a position where I could afford it because unfortunately a lot of really good therapists are expensive and don't take insurance. Um, and I think that there's a lot of shitty, there's a lot of shitty therapists out there. Not, maybe yeah. not shitty is the right word. There's a lot of therapists out there that are good for somebody who just needs to like see a therapist temporarily and talk about mm-hmm. their like the common day stressors that they're having. But for somebody who's dealing with 
complex trauma and the disease of family dysfunction, it just seems like it's a bit limited. Yeah. Well, as a clinical psychologist myself who had, you know, a thriving practice for years and um, someone who's gone on to build a coaching program, there was reasons why I built a program. And part of it was, is I just saw that there were so many people that really needed this, but they can't this, like, I had a waiting list of a hundred people. Like when word gets out that you're a great clinician, there's just no way that you can meet the demand. Right. Um, so I agree that, and, and I'll say this, I mean, in a, in a class of 50 psychologists at my doctoral program, there were five of us that were good psychologists. Right. And it's like, you, it, it's one of those things you can't necessarily always teach someone. Not at all. Right? And then it's, you have to be willing to go the extra mile and get trained. And like, I, nobody was teaching me attachment theory. I had to go and research it and learn about it and apply myself because I really cared about my clients, you know? So, I mean, there's, there's so much what you're saying and there's, there's a lot of problems in, in mental health services and access to mental health care. Um, it, it is not accessible. It's not prioritized in healthcare. Um, the insurance coverage is, is pretty terrible. So even if you are a psychologist and you want to take insurance, the reimbursement is so terrible that it's, I think for me, when I looked it up, they would cover like for me to see $60. Yeah. And it's, (laughs) you're dealing with student loans of getting a doctorate degree. It's just the, I mean, this could be a a whole other episode, of course, but it's a nightmare. Like there's definitely issues. And and this was part of why I went on and created the program I did. Um, Because also I believe a lot of psychologists are not going to actually tell you like it is. And they're not going to actually tell you what you can do. They're not going to be honest about their experiences. A lot of people are trained to just be a blank slate. A sounding board. To just be a sounding board. And that doesn't actually help people that really need the, the guidance. Yes, I think that it can work for some people. Like the people that need to go to therapy just to hear themselves say the words out loud, you know? But for somebody who's got some issues (laughs) when you need to heal from trauma and rewire your brain you you need some direction Uh what what happened this week like you know a therapist asking you that that's not going to be sufficient for for healing so anyways (laughs) I feel like this is a whole this is a whole other tangent but I I really appreciate you sharing your journey and I know so so many of the listeners can relate to, to what you've shared. Um, I want to get into dating. If you're open to talk, if we could like switch gears and just like, can you tell us what dating is like for you with all of this awareness now and like where you're at with it? Let's talk about it. Absolutely. So I did take a pretty like significant break from it. Um, I think that that's important. I really, really, really think that that's important to take an intentional break from that. Um, 
I was messaging, I had a listener that messaged me the other day and we were, <clears throat> we were, um, she was asking me about this and <clears throat> she made the comment um, about, you know, being attracted to like the wrong type of people. And she goes, that makes me feel like um, I'm just going to have to sell myself short. Basically that she's going to have to settle for somebody that she's not really that into. And I said, well, that's it, it, just because our pickers are broken. Don't mean that we can't fix them. And I think that part of fixing that is, yeah, is having that time alone. And um, I don't want to say getting to the place where you get to a point where you're like, I don't care if I have that or not. Like, I'll be completely honest. Like I haven't gotten to that place. And you know, there's a part of me that's like, you hear the stories, right? Like, oh, once, you know, once I got to the point where, you know, I'd be fine being perfectly single for the rest of my life. Like, that's when I met my person. I don't know if that's realistic. Like, I think that it's okay to, to, to feel like, yeah, yeah. I do want that in my life. Um, I but what I told like, I, I just want to interject because that, that's such a good point. And I, I like the idea of getting to the place where, you can be honest that you want a relationship. And of course, mm -hmm. it's a value, right? Like you're a human. You want to connect. You want a life partner. Be there. Just don't base your self-worth off whether or not you have a relationship. That would be the distinction for me. Absolutely. Um, so I asked this girl, I said, have you, taken, um, have you taken that time? And she said, no. And I said, you made the comment about selling yourself short. I said, you're really selling yourself short unless you take that break. You know, you're selling yourself, you're, you're really selling yourself short on who you, who will you be attracted to and who is attracted to you if you don't take that time for yourself. But what I'm learning and what I knew is like, we, we can take this break, we can work on ourselves, but that doesn't mean that once we start dating again, that everything's just going to be like easy breezy, <laughs> you know, like that's unrealistic too. I think that there's work that has to be done single, but I think that there's more shit that's going to have to be worked out in relationship. Um, yes. So yes. <laughs> Spoiler alert to all those people who are out there taking breaks right now. Like when you get back on the dating scene, there is work that can only be done in a relationship. And then you get to have the opportunity to have corrective emotional experiences and to have healing happen within a relationship. And there, there's certain healing that can only happen within that context. So I'll share about a recent experience, but up until that point, you know, I've I've dated here and there throughout the pandemic. I mean, it's not, it's honestly just not been a big priority for me because I really have just been trying to like cultivate this life of fulfillment, you know, and have my attention focused on, you know, building, building a life um, so that I can attract the type of person that I want to attract, you know? Um, but I will say that in the little dating that I did do, I did notice a huge difference as far as who I was attracted to, uh, going on dates with guys that in the past I think I would have been into, but I was definitely turned off. Um, not uh, not going into a debilitating state of anxiety if they didn't text me back. Then, like I, I noticed a huge difference, a huge difference, which was such a, a blessing. Yeah. Um, so recently, a few months ago, I um I connected with a guy. Um, it was not uh, like through a dating app that kind of happened organically. 
Um, and we, uh, we ended up really pitting it off. And uh, he didn't, he didn't live here in the state. So he's out of town. But um, this was like the first person in a very long time that I was like, jazzed about, like that I kind of like had like the butterflies about. And so, um, so my fear of abandonment got triggered naturally. Uh, of course that's going to happen. Right. And, yeah. and so, um, so it was a very interesting experience of when that would get triggered. Um, and, and noticing the difference as far as, um, I would say in particular, the dialogue in my head, the biggest thing about it was like being able to have that realization in the moment, like when I would start to get triggered or activated and kind of go into a trauma response and start to feel it in my body. I was able to like recognize in the moment. Um, the reason that you think that you're feeling upset is not like actually, you know, the reason that you think you're upset. And, and as my therapist said, she was like, this is just more unresolved business. And I was like, I'm done resolving business. <laughs> I'm like, can business be closed? <laughs> um, but it would just be the experience of sitting with it. In the past, I would have tried to do anything to just distract, avoid it. And, um, and really just sitting and closing my eyes. And one big thing is, you know, I've had a hard time with the whole inner child stuff. Like it's a bit corny to me, I'll be honest. But like I was in these moments, I was ha I was closing my eyes and I was picturing my myself as a child and saying to her, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to abandon you. Mm. And so it, it would last, it would pass a lot quicker. Um, but so basically what happened though was like, a red flag was re revealed. Um, <laughs> so a red flag was revealed and kind of like at this time that it was like becoming apparent for me, this person kind of started to pull away some. Um, Cause honestly, I think that they knew, I don't know, whatever. I think that they knew that I was going to figure them out. Um, and so, um, yeah, I haven't shared about this, but so, yeah, so basically we ended up like having a conversation and, um, basically like what was said, um, in the moment it made me feel what I heard was I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. The reality of the situation is that is not the truth and it actually has absolutely nothing to do with me. Um, and it was, I, I was activated, I got pretty triggered, but it was really amazing to see how quickly that passed. Um, and, I, I, and one thing that helped, I think, and what happened is so, I had something pretty profound happen um, in January is I received a, a message from Brian number one. Mm. So this guy had ghosted me in 2015 and um, yeah. And so I hadn't heard from this guy since 2015. Um, and so on my birthday, January 27th, I go on my Instagram and I see, I have a little message in like the people you don't follow group and I click on it and it's none other than Brian number one. And this is what he wow. said. Wow. He says, <clears throat> hello, hope all is well. 
I've been following you on Instagram and what you're doing is incredible. I'm struggling with alcoholism and have been to 30-day treatment twice since I saw you. And this disease is why I couldn't connect with you. And I am so sorry for that. Your message is connective, truthful, and no doubt helped many people, including me. So thank you. I wish you success and the best life has to offer. Keep your message strong and thank you again. Wow. What was that like for you to get that message? It just was like such a fucking full circle moment. Mm-hmm. Like if you had told me like the way that I felt, like when he ghosted me, I literally thought I was going to fucking die. I didn't think I was going to feel better ever again. And if you had told me like what lay ahead, well, actually what lay ahead was like a Brian number two that was going to suck even more. <laughs> but what would happen then? Yes. What would happen then is that I would hit a bottom. And I would finally like be willing to do the work. And not only that, I would embark on this journey to like figure out why, like what is my greater purpose? And I would launch this podcast and I would help thousands of people. And on top of that, I would get a message from Brian number one, like having him say that. But the reason that that was instrumental in me receiving that was because what I told myself when he broke up with me or whatever, it was like, it was like, I'm not good enough. And the reality of the situation is no, he's a fucking alcoholic and it had nothing to do with me. And so it was just so beautiful that I was able to receive that message from him because it was able, I was able to have a completely different perspective in this new situation. Um, I want to tell you about the date I had last night though. Okay. We definitely want to get to that. I, I I love hearing your story. And I think there's so many people listening right now who need to remember mm-hmm. it's not that you're not good enough. You are always enough. You are more than enough. You've always been enough. You always be enough. And so often we personalize those breakups and we make it about our worthiness and it has nothing to do with that. It's the dynamic of two people coming together. That's not working. Right. And oftentimes it's because the person does not have the emotional capacity to show up in a relationship and show up in the way that you need to be loved. And that has nothing to do with your worthiness. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I hope everybody listening can really internalize that message. I think it's hard for, I think it's like with people who have more of an anxious attachment, I think it's like harder for them to like understand that, like, well, I'm like the perfect person in the world. Like, you know what I mean? It's just p- people are different, and yeah, we're kind of we're kind of coming from it p- from a perspective of like I need this to like make me whole. Yep. Or, whereas other people don't operate that way. Yeah. So I think that's why we make it about ourselves. Totally. The other thing I want to say is you and I have some similarities um, in our story, and I had an adult bottom moment. Um, while I was getting my doctorate and was in a relationship with a narcissist and had a near-death experience. Um, And my my listeners know that that was the thing that started my work with attachment theory and me finally going to therapy and building what I do now, which is helping other women. Um, So I, I, I just love that when people can take really hard shit and trauma and really, really challenging things and turn it into a vehicle to help other people. 
Um, so when I come on your podcast, I can share. Yeah, I want to hear all about it. Yep. Tell us about your date last night. Let's do it. So I really, I really dread all the, you know, it's such a pain in the ass, you know, like you never want to go, you know, it's going to suck, you know, (laughs) girl, I got to get you my like dating mindset stuff. We're going to work on it. So, so you're like, it's going to suck. You're not into it. You know how it is. Okay. So I go, so he, so we're going to go to a comedy show, but we're meeting at a bar before. So he texts me at seven o'clock. He's like, I'm at the bar. And I'm like, okay, I'll be there in 15 minutes. And so then I show up at the bar and nobody's in, like, he's not there. And so I like, I text him, I'm like, I'm here. And I sit there for like 10 minutes. And I was like, oh my God, like, I think I'm getting stood up for like the very first time in my whole life. And I was like, this is so weird because he like texted me that he was here. And so then I just like start chatting it up with some people that were at the bar. And I was like, I think I just got stood up. And uh, we were like discussing. I was like, what, what do you think the psychology is behind somebody? Like, not only like, do they, are they standing me up, but they told me that they were here. Like, that's so weird. So I'm like talking to them and it's like 20 minutes go by. And then he texts me. He's like, Oh, so I just looked at my phone. He's like, where are you at the comedy club or at the, um, at the bar? And I was like, I'm at the bar. And so then he calls me and I was like, I'm here at La Roca's. And then the people at the people at the bar were like, no, you're not. <laughs> so I like gone to the wrong what place. What a moment. What a yes. moment. So you're in the wrong bar. Yeah. So literally it was like, it was like across the street. It was like a catty corner. So I go over there uh, to the right bar. <laughs> nice. Uh, definitely lied about his height. I'm 5'11". So that's like a pet peeve for me. Um, looked like he was uh, John Travolta from Greece, like the outfit. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just get, I'm painting a picture. It was like okay, a you know, leather jeans. jacket, yeah, and, and wife, wife, wife beater, <laughs> and shorter than he said he was. Um, I don't well, care about the short, but I mean, I, I mean, I do. I want somebody who's taller than me. That's just like honest. But I'm the five thing, eleven. So yeah, so yeah. That I don't know about you, but like the thing that is the real red flag is that you lied. Like, please be honest. I think that a lot of guys are in denial about how tall they actually are. Because when I've informed these guys that they're not as tall, like they can't all be that good of actors. Like the look of shock on their face when I inform them that they're not as tall as they actually are. I think that some of them actually believe it. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. So we just had like one beer and it was time to go to the comedy club. Not into it. But then, so we were there for an hour and a half at the comedy club and he had three doubles over the course of, 90 minutes so i'm gonna say that's a drinking problem um that would have mattered like regardless not was not into it period but yeah three doubles over the course of uh of 90 minutes and then asked if i would split the bill when i had a diet coke no come on that's terrible so that was that (laughs) i gotta ask you so I am sober. Um, I was sober all of 2020. And then it was funny. I like moved in with my aunt during the pandemic and she likes to drink a glass of wine at night. So I was like, okay, I'll have a glass of wine. Realized I'm not into it once again. And I'm, I'm recently sober again. Um, 
I find that it's not a big deal because I'm around people who don't drink. So it's like, it just never comes up for me. And I just, I don't like how I feel when I drink. So I haven't had a dependence, but I just don't like how I feel. I don't like waking up hungover. I don't like the feeling of alcohol. I, yeah. But when you're dating, tell me about this. What is it like? Do you find it hard to practice sobriety and date people who drink? Like, what does that bring up for you? Well, I think you can probably tell by my personality. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't need to have a drink to, <laughs> mm-hmm. to loosen up. Um, That's what I tell people. I'm, like, I'm crazy enough without alcohol. Exactly. Like, I like don't need it. I feel like my base operating system is like two drinks. Um, it's. I don't. I mean, I. I personally don't mind being around it at all. Like, if is you know, once somebody gets drunk. Um, that's one thing. Um, but no, I don't mind it. I don't mind being around people that are drinking. And I feel like the only people that would have an issue that with me not drinking is probably somebody who has a drinking problem. Um, I guess I could understand it too, though. If like, for example, like if somebody was, I don't know, really, really, really passionate about wine, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a drinking problem. But if somebody's like a big wine enthusiast, like I could understand them wanting to have a partner that also like that they can enjoy that with. It's like, for me, like I love, like I love carbs so much and like cheese, like it would be really hard for me to date somebody that was gluten-free or vegan. Like, seriously, I think that would be a deal breaker. So I get it. This is how (laughs) I feel about steak. I'm like, I, yeah, I can't do, I love a good steak. Um, and food, especially as a non-drinker, like I love food so much that like, I want to be able to have a partner that I can enjoy that with as well. Mm-hmm. Just food yeah. is life. Yes. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. You know, it's interesting because I will have people who are sober and they'll say that it's a deal breaker for them that if someone drinks at all, they're not interested Um, but I do think that some of it really comes down to how much of the work have you done yourself and how solid are you in your own sobriety? The more absolute clear you are for yourself, you're probably gonna have more tolerance for other people, but I could see even newly sober, you might just not want to put yourself in that environment, you know, but even people who, I mean, even people, I don't know, some people just might not want to be around it at all. Like, you know, I think I'm a little bit. I think I'm unique in how comfortable I am around it or the situations that I can put myself in. Like, I don't necessarily think that I'm like the typical, you know, like, like I'll go to sports bars by myself to like watch, you know, mm-hmm. sports and just meet random people. So I think I'm a little bit unique in that respect. Some people just might not want to be around it at all. And I can understand that. It's kind of like, I feel like there's like two choices, right? It's like, you can be with somebody that's also in recovery. Um, the risk is like that they could relapse, right? And I've I've known people that have had some real freaking horror stories. You know, people that were with people that were had long term sobriety and relapsed. And um, but the thing there is that the the plus of it is like just this bond and this connection of being on this shared journey, knowing this pain and and being on this path of like becoming your highest and your best self, and just as able to connect. But the downside of it obviously is, um, is the, you know, that they could relapse if they're suffering from that disease. And then the flip side of that is like dating somebody who's not in recovery. Um, 
being able to find, like, can you find that connection with them on that, on that level of depth uh, mm-hmm. that you would want, that you would find with somebody who's also like in recovery? Yeah. Thank you for your perspective on that. I do agree that it's, it's a choice. There's, there's different ways. People are just going to feel differently about it. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate your vulnerability and just sharing with the audience. I feel like I want to have you back on in a couple months and we can like see where you're at in your dating journey. And I, of course I thought of more questions I want to ask you. So Um, I would love it. I'll take all the help I can get girl. Yeah. You know, I, I, I definitely think that, um, there is an abundance of women that are and men too, right. That are just realizing, Whoa, I don't want to keep repeating these same patterns over and over and over Mm -hmm. Um, in stories like mine, stories like yours there's another path. You really can move away from your old ways of being. You really can intentionally step into new ways of being. Is it all rainbows and unicorns and butterflies? Hell no, but it's totally possible. Um, and I think creating communities where we have people that are all on that same journey together, it just makes it feel not as lonely. Yeah. And you don't have to do it alone. And like, honestly, I don't even know if you can do it alone. <laughs> you know, yeah, and I tried that. I mean, it sounds like you did too, right? It's like, I, yeah, I don't think you can. You, you owe it. Maybe if you could, it would just take too long and it would be too It would hard. take for forever. Kind of like trying to fix your broken picker without taking a, a date, a break from dating. Like maybe you could eventually get there, but it's going to be a slow ass process. Yeah. I can't wait to come on your podcast and talk about how I was totally a a serial, a serial dater. I was never single for periods of my life, like long periods, probably from middle school. I always had a boyfriend. So that'll be juicy. People meet them so easily. Like it it takes me forever. Like, I don't know if people just have like such low standards or what it is. I don't know. Well, mine was my, I mean, my disorganized attachment style just from such a young age. And, you know, you talked about that hyper focus on the relationship. I had that from such a young age. And if I knew a relationship was ending, I immediately knew the next one that could start. You're like Tiffany. Tiffany was like that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I can't wait to talk with you on your podcast as well. Um, Is there anything you would tell the audience who's on this journey, who is starting to learn about their childhood trauma and how it impacts them? Is there any message that you'd want to give them before we wrap up? Well, first of all, just know that like, there's nothing shameful or embarrassing about having a broken picker or any of this stuff. So I hope you know that like, literally that's, why I try to talk about it so openly and also with like um, a level of humor because there's nothing shameful or embarrassing about it. And so it really just trying to normalize that. Um, you know, we didn't, and what, if I come back on to, I'd love to talk more about my, my childhood some, but I mean, the message, the message for me is like regarding that stuff is um, it's all relative. And I was somebody that um, thought that because I was never physically or sexually abused or because my needs were always accounted for, well, how bad could it truly have been? 
Um, and I really was oblivious to the true impact that it had on me. And so my message is that, you know, like emotional and psychological forms of neglect and abuse can be just as damaging as the more blatant forms of abuse. And in, in some respects, perhaps even more damaging from the perspective of so many people spend their entire lives oblivious to the fact that they suffered any ab abuse or trauma at all. Um, so, yeah, that was... Uh, you know, I thought that abuse had to be intentional. I thought that trauma had to be some big catastrophic event. I thought that because I could talk about my childhood without getting upset, that meant that it didn't impact me. And what I've learned over the past several years is that none of that is true. Um, I did experience abuse. I did experience trauma and it did majorly impact me. Um, and that's not to say that my parents are bad people, you know, um, but that's the only way that I could heal was until I had that realization. Andrea. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. We absolutely need to do another episode because there's so much we could talk about there, but just to kind of wrap it up, I think saying, do not invalidate yourself. Your experience is valid. We really can't begin our healing process until we have accepted the reality of what we went through. And it sounds like for you, that was a major part of your healing is just validating, right? Like saying, yeah, this was, this was trauma. This happened to me and my experience is valid just because it doesn't look how, you know, like a big traumatic event would, would be that doesn't invalidate it. So thank you for sharing that. We will talk about it next time more. Absolutely. Um, right. I can't thank wait to get on so your much. podcast. Think, yeah, thank you. Tell everybody where can they find it? How do they connect with you? Tell us all the things. Yep, Adult Child. You'll see it. Um, and then you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. And if you want to email me, it's Andrea at adultchildpodcast.com or you can DM me. I love to hear from people. I always respond. Um, I also have a, like a Patreon group where I host two weekly adult child support groups, which is an amazing group. So if anybody has any interest in that, it's patreon.com slash adult child. Amazing. Awesome. Yep. And I can't wait to come on your show. Thank you so much. And of course, everyone listening, we're wishing you high self-worth and great relationships. We'll talk to you soon. You guys, thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate each and every one of you. The best way that you can thank me is by sharing this episode on Instagram, Facebook, and making sure that you tag me at Dr. Morgan Coaching. And it would really mean the world to me if you took just two minutes to leave me a five-star review on iTunes. This podcast is not free to produce, and the more that you help this little show grow, the more people will have access to this valuable information. So until next time, I'm wishing you high self-worth and great relationships. Thank you for being part of this community.